0: Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly, Akira Utska, and me, I'm Howard Parker. Today, Katie Daly takes us to Hagerstown, Maryland, where she interviews luthier Paul Beard of Beard Guitars. Paul Beard is very well known for supplying instruments to some of the top players in the world, including Sally Van Meter, Abby Gardner, Mike Aldridge, Josh Swift, Andy Hall, Jerry Douglas, and others. In today's episode, which incidentally is part one of part two, uh, due to the length of the the interview, Paul talks about the early years, his interest in airplanes, discovering bluegrass music, discovering the seldom seen, becoming an instrument repair person, meeting Mike Aldridge and ultimately the relationship that led to the legendary guitar, the MA6. Here's Katie with Paul Beard.
1: All right, I'm sitting in Hagerstown with Howard Parker and uh, Paul Beard, and we're eating gelato. And uh, (laughs) there was no argument that we had to come here and get some gelato. But uh, tell me a little bit of your background. You're from the Hagerstown area?
2: Yes, I grew up in Hagerstown, and um, um, basically I've lived here all my life and literally have lived in the same house all my life. Really? Oh, wow. Never moved. So
1: Hagerstown is about, what, 50 miles or more from D.C., up to
2: 70. Mm -hmm. What did your parents do here? Uh, My father worked at a toy company that was started in Hagerstown called um, Gilbert. And it originally started as Porter Chemical, and they made all the chemistry sets, and the weather uh, sets, and microscope sets for children. And they later became Gilbert Industries, and then they also became Lionel Trains, and they made a Lionel train set here mm-hmm. in Hagerstown. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. He was uh, the purchasing agent for that company. Yeah. All right. My and your mom? mom was a housewife. Okay, so
1: how did you? Were they interested in music? Did they take you and uh, How many brothers and sisters do you have?
2: I have one brother and one uh, one sister. I'm the youngest. And uh, no, they were not interested in music at all. We occasionally listened to the radio, but we only that's had that's a sacrilege. Them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we had. I can tell you that we really only had um, three or four albums when I was a kid growing up, and that was. And they were? Pat Pat Boone's Christmas album. (laughs) And three Herb Albert and the Tijuana Breast albums. Right, the girl with the whipped cream? Whipped cream, (laughs) yeah. Yep, Taste of Honey, all that stuff. Yeah, okay. They were the only albums that we had in the house. So where did your interest in bluegrass come? Well, I have a buddy that I've known since the third grade, and I'm still really good friends with him, by the name of John Seaburn. Can you spell that? uh, S-E-B-U-R-N. And John, um, in middle school, started playing violin. Well, he started in elementary school, but he started playing fiddle and violin, fiddle tunes. And when we were in high school, it it wasn't very popular to be in high school and play bluegrass music or fiddle tunes, but he was my best friend, and one day he just said to me, I have nobody to play with, how about if I show you how to play guitar to accompany me on the fiddle? So he's the one that got me into playing and introduced me to bluegrass.
1: Alright, where did your first guitar come from?
2: And what was it? Uh, it was a Montgomery Ward's piece of junk. It was a
1: is that was a, that emblazoned across he, the pig head? That was the model. Piece yes. of junk?
2: He, it was spelled piece O Junk. <laughs> um, it was a no name Wards very cheap acoustic guitar. hmm John got me into playing music. He introduced me to um, Bluegrass, and then from there, um, I just wanted to learn other instruments. So that was that was my senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. I didn't start playing and really listening to music until towards my senior year of high school.
1: Okay. Did you go away to college? Did you uh, get a job? What did you... Uh, I went away to
2: college, yeah. I went went to college to be an aircraft mechanic and got my license. um, uh, The federal aviation requires you to have licenses to touch an aircraft, so I got my A&P license, which stands for Airframe and Power Plant. Mm -hmm. And then I decided I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. So I worked on airplanes for a couple of years, and then I decided to go back to college to be a mechanical engineer. And I did that, and at the same time I was working part-time in a music store giving lessons. And I, after I graduated from um, my second stint of college, I decided that I just wanted to work in the music store and, and play music and, and give lessons. And, and your
1: family reaction
2: was? Uh, they didn't care because they had the Pat Boone album and the other albums to listen to, and uh, it, it just didn't matter to them. So, um, they were supportive, uh, very supportive. My mom was very supportive. But yeah, I taught lessons for a long time—banjo, mandolin, guitar, dobro—in um, Hagerstown, and then I had this strange notion that I could make a living playing music. And I wanted to pursue that playing so, bluegrass. Yes. Okay. So I started the, the Long Meadow Mining Company, and I quickly realized that that doesn't work so well. Wasn't able to make very much money. Tens of dollars. might have reflected. Yeah, tens of dollars, and it might have reflected something about my playing ability. <laughs> okay. I don't know.
1: Okay. So then, when did you get into? building things or who well, inspired you to think this way? Obviously you're mechanically oriented if you
2: worked on airplanes and stuff. Well yes, I've always uh, uh, as a kid I always built models and I did a lot of stuff um, around the farm. We, we had a little farmette and I worked on a farm when I was in college actually and I always did stuff with my hands was always working on Vehicles and farm equipment and building things, then I built models when I was a kid, but um, I started repairing instruments when I was eighteen, so I was still in college. I was just in college, out of high school, and I people just started bringing me stuff to work on. The first job I did was a mandolin that the person needed a new uh, nut put on the mandolin, so mm-hmm. I made one out of bone and um So I got this job at the music store after college and did a lot of repair there. And I enjoyed that and learned, taught myself how to repair instruments. And that was in the hair metal days. And so I had a lot of local bands bringing in the odd shaped electric guitars that looked like Pablo Picasso designed them. And they wanted a different bridge put on, different pickups. And these kids all had long hair and they all spoke a language I didn't quite understand. And that's what I did. I, I basically worked on electric guitars for years. But I heard uh, when I was in college, my buddy John Seaburn and I were driving in the car to college and he had WMU on. <clears throat> and it was probably the first time I actually listened to bluegrass on the radio. and. Um, this song came on, and I remember where I was uh, in relationship to where we were driving. I, I remember the song, and it was um, uh, I think it was Jerry Gray said this. That was the seldom seen Little Georgia Rose off of Act Three. I had no idea what that all meant, but I went to uh, Waxy Maxie's, mm-hmm. I think, in Hagerstown, and bought Act Three. And then I bought Act Two and Act One, and so it was Mike Aldridge was the. First. I did, had no idea what a dobro was. I heard that sound on that. And what's interesting when you listen to that cut, when you listen to Little Georgia Rose, there's not a dobro break. It's all backup. You, you hear when they. I think it's when they modulate to the to up a step. Mike plays a, a prominent backup. Yeah portion to the, and I heard that and I had no idea what that was. So that's how it all started. And then, so I went to a local another local music store here in town trying to find a dobro because that's what the album accredited it to. They didn't know what I was talking about. And I ended up buying one of these little extender nuts and put it on an acoustic guitar to try to learn to play dobro. Because up until this time, I was just playing rhythm guitar with fill tubes.
1: In an extender note, in other words, raising the strings? <clears throat> yeah, yes.
2: on a standard guitar. Right. Yeah. So. How'd that work out? Well, it matched, the, the tone of it matched my playing ability. Oh. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty bad. So I, uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's a picture I think I showed you. I'm mm-hmm. sitting there with this cheesy guitar. Here it is. That's an old K guitar. I still have that guitar. Okay. It still has It still has the extender nut on it.
1: But you didn't have the... Uh, resonator. Resonator on no. it. No. Okay. Well, before we go on, years ago you explained to me exactly what a resonator guitar was and what the difference is. So I've always remembered that explanation. It was very uh, straightforward and easy to understand.
2: So could you do that again? Probably not, but I'll try. (laughs) The resonator guitar is a mechanically driven speaker. And it was, of course, invented in 1927 by John Dopiera in an effort to make a louder acoustic instrument because at that time electric guitar really wasn't invented yet and they were just working on electric guitar. (coughs) Those mandolin orchestras and and those... um, Uh, those orchestras that were playing um, traditional music were trying to be the guitar was needed to be louder so it was invented uh, to be a louder instrument mechanically and it's a it's a diaphragm an aluminum speaker that's very thin Uh, it's usually ten thousandths of an inch thick and it's um, It's just driven by the 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 strings, and it's just like a speaker cabinet today. All right. And so, what what is the pie plate on that guitar? Well, the thing that you see on the top is a cover plate, and that is basically to keep your fingers and your potato chips out of the the resonator itself. The resonator is what lies beneath. So, what people see on the instrument is just a cover plate. uh, more kind of like a grill, what you would see a grill on a speaker. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, we did see on
2: Facebook a picture
1: where you had were cleaning that out for the infamous string dusters yeah. the player, mm-hmm. and it was pretty full of dirt and dust. and
2: Those guys grip. are dirty. They are <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's, that's a problem with that instrument is... Um, it does collect, you're playing it horizontal, so everything that falls down falls into it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, um, what, what people don't realize is when they clean their instrument and they're, they're using their, their cloth and they're rubbing it over that cover plate, it acts like a cheese grater and you just shave uh, particles and, and, and fuzz off of the cloth into the resonator. Okay. So it's the only instrument that I can think of that sounds worse the more you play it. You gotta keep it clean. Okay. Keep it clean. Keep it clean. Good advice. Hopefully, those string dusters will clean up their act.
1: All right. So, um, you hear this uh, Act Three, and you think about the Seldom Scene. When was the first time you actually saw them perform?
2: First time I saw them perform was probably 1980, and it was at the Weinberg Center in Frederick, Maryland. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So it was not the original seldom seen. By this time, John Starling has left, and right, so Phil Rosenthal replaced him. Right. It was the
2: second generation. So it was Phil Rosenthal, and um, Ben Eldridge, and Tom Gray, and, and.
1: But your eyes and ears immediately went to Mike.
2: <clears throat> oh yeah, yeah. Yep. Mike was. Mike uh, had the the sound that. Um, Perked my ears up. That was the sound that I liked. Um, it was very musical. He played, uh, you know, of course, once I got into the bluegrass, I started listening to other people, and he sounded different than Buck Graves.
1: What was the difference
2: stylistically? Mike was always very smooth. Mike was very smooth and sophisticated in his playing and tone. He, um, he definitely, in my opinion, had more space between notes, so he 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 maximized phrasing, and timing and tone. And um, although he did play really fast songs, his kind of hallmark style was the tone that he was able to get out of the instrument in some of these slower slower passages and and. Um, uh, his his tone was just amazing and he was the first that played it like that he was sort of a springboard for the jerry yeah. douglases and the rob ikes right and that's right so so you know you can look at the history of the dobro kind of the the, the pete kirby and and the oswald an initial dobro introduction to dobro and the music and then josh Grays really took it to that next level. Mm -hmm. And then Mike Aldridge, his early playing, emulated um, Josh or Buck Graves. And from there, Mike developed his own style and his own tone. And then, of course, Jerry Douglas grew up listening to Mike Aldridge. And Jerry um, emulated Mike initially and then developed his... Own style and his own tone, and the rest is history.
1: Right. Well, the other thing that I think of, I don't know about Pete Kirby, but I think of Josh with that kind of funny pork pie hat. And were the were the dobro players like some of the bass players, the comic in the bands, or not?
2: Well, it seemed that way with with, uh, with Josh. Yeah, initially. So that was a departure, and that's true with with um, Oswald and and Pete Kirby. You know that 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 was the role. Um, when Mike came along, that all changed. It got very sophisticated. Um, his presence was totally different right down from the way he carried himself, the way he dressed, and the way he played. His persona, yeah. however, I don't know how he did it, but his persona was, um, was brought out in his music. He, he was able to emulate... Um, his persona through through playing that instrument, he and it shows. The coolest guy.
0: Yeah. The coolest looking guy. And the, in the creases
2: way. in his jeans. Yeah. I, I I
1: told Howard this, but one time I sat for an hour and listened to Mike and his brother Dave uh, talk about they were going to get a new iron, and they <laughs> had the pros and cons of all the different models of irons that were available, and this was a very serious. Uh, Discussion, I think they put more into picking out an iron than they did in picking out an instrument. It was that important to them. Yeah,
2: the Steamomatic three thousand.
1: <laughs> he was a handsome guy, and um, so the first time you met him was at Gettysburg.
2: It was at the Gettys uh, Bluegrass uh, Festival, Gettysburg Bluegrass Festival, and that was nineteen. Um, that was '79. So actually, I, I take that back. The first time I saw them must have been '79 at the Weinberg, mm-hmm. because then that summer I saw them at Gettysburg. And you told me
1: that you went up and spoke and got an autograph from all of the
2: members of the seldom scene. I was able to get pictures and autographs from all the members of the seldom scene except for Mike, <laughs> <laughs> because I just was I was too nervous to approach him. You know, I think also, I said hi to him. Right. And and that was it. And it was kind of a sheepish eye. And then you got um, a guitar. You got a, a lesson with him. I did. I, um, I I got a lesson from him. I drove down to his house, and um, uh, he came to the door, and and I thought that was odd because I expected him to have like a man servant.
1: <laughs> and um,
2: and he took me. He took me down into the basement. And I thought that was odd because I I just thought that there would be you know some large studio (laughs) right and we're down in his basement and he's uh, playing his guitar and giving me a lesson and he's taping it and he asked me to play and I can't play because I'm too nervous and and, and he took me up for lunch and we ate in his kitchen and that was odd I didn't think that he would eat. (laughs) <laughs> so. and what did he make you for lunch <laughs> he, made, he made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches <laughs> and I just I couldn't imagine that Mike Aldridge would be eating I thought it would be caviar <laughs> and, and some really uh, incredible wine or something but peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and that just blew my mind
1: well but as you grew to be Good friends with him, you realize that he was just a normal guy. He really was. That people, you weren't. Why are you laughing?
2: I would say yes and no. Why? Well, I... Go ahead. Well, he he just was bigger than life, and uh, he he would he would tell stories. He was a fantastic storyteller, and I really wish, in retrospect, that I would have either um, uh, written down these stories or or taped him you know recorded him we couldn't oh no we couldn't play it for anybody in public but (laughs) it they were great stories and he had a million of them Mm -hmm. so yeah he
0: the first resonator guitar that you played was was that an omi vintage guitar or was that yeah it was
2: yeah i was working (laughs) at the music store carpenter's world music in hagerstown and that's where i was teaching Mm -hmm. and a guy came in and somehow we started talking and he said he had a Dobro, and I said, "Well, do you play it?" He goes, "Well, no, I can't. I don't know how to play that thing." So I asked him if he wanted to sell it, and it was an OMI Dobro that so was made in, uh, I think, 1974, and I bought it for. Uh, I think he wanted $200 for it, and all I had was $125, and. I said, I don't have $200, will you take 125 And the guy was so desperate to get rid of it, he said, sure. So I went to his house and picked it up. And uh, it wasn't the color that I wanted, but I didn't care. Right. Yeah. So that was my first real dobro. All right. So at what point you, you decide you're going to build uh, these guitars? That's a really good question. So after I got that real dobro... And I was playing it for a while, and I could actually play some songs. Being the tinkerer, I tore the thing apart, and I was really disappointed with how it was constructed internally. It was it was really rough. Um, by that I mean, you know, glue smeared all over, and uh, plywood was cracked and, and coming apart. And it I could tell that it wasn't really a high quality instrument. So it didn't make sense to me at the time that you could buy a really high-end uh, Martin guitar, or a high-end acoustic guitar, high-end banjo, violin, mandolin. But Dobro was it. And that's back then, they were selling for like $300. They were very inexpensive. And I just wasn't getting the sound that I wanted out of it, so I decided that I would learn to build, I, I would make one for myself, which is what I did. And I built I built a resonator guitar and a, and a flat top guitar. And I'll never forget I took it down to the Birchmere, and it was a seldom seen. And Tony Rice was sitting in for whoever the guitar player was at the time. I don't recall. It was the mid '80s. This is 1985. And. Um, during break, they played their first set, and I'm nervous because I brought these two instruments down to show Mike. And um, I'm I'm seated, you know, I'm seated at the table right at Mike's feet because that's the place to be if you're the Dobro player. You you think you're going to be able to get some sort of licks from him via osmosis or something just because you're close. Uh-huh. And um, they go on break, and I go back in the green room at the old Birchmere, and. Uh, I said, uh, Mike. This was
1: Birchmere one, two, one or on three?
2: The, I guess it was two, the one on the two. corner. Okay. I guess that's two, yep. the one in the corner. <clears throat> and um, I said, hi, Mike, I made this guitar. Would you be interested in looking at it? Meaning the Dobro. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. So I pull this guitar out, and it's really drastically different. My very first guitar has a wooden uh, walnut cover plate that I hand-carved took me a week to carve it. So it doesn't look like a traditional dobro, but Mike, I'll never forget, during his entire break, he sat there in the green room and played that guitar. He never took a break. He never stopped to get a smoke or he just sat there and played it and said, wow, this is really good. This is really amazing. Little side story. I took the acoustic guitar, the flat top guitar, and I held it up to Tony. I said, hey, "Hi, Tony. I, I made this guitar." And Tony just looked over. He goes,
1: "Yeah, it looks like a guitar."
2: <laughs> never, never st- didn't strum it. Didn't want, didn't no, want to touch. no interest. What? Which was okay with me. That right. was fine. I, again, I was just happy to meet Tony Rice. But Mike played that uh, resonator that I built for his entire break, and uh, I just thought that was amazing. So he he uh, is the reason that I'm that I'm in the business. I mean, and I told Mike that many times. And Mike was an interesting man in that I learned some stuff later uh, later in his life that he revealed to me that I had no idea. Number one, he he suffered from stage fright, and he he would get nervous before he'd play had no idea as accomplished as he was I just assumed he was so confident could just walk out there on stage but um, he told me that he would get he would get sick until he started playing the first note and then he was fine so that's um, that's kind of interesting the other thing about him that just kind of blows my mind is that as good as he was and accomplished he didn't Realize he was that good, or he didn't think he was that good. So he was always amazed when somebody would come up to him and would share the love and say, "Hey, you know, you're the reason I do this, this, and this, or you're the reason I listen to Dobro or whatever." Mm -hmm. He he was always um, he just had no idea. He he didn't. I don't think he ever grasped how influential he was in bluegrass in general and the instrument and, and number two, how accomplished he was.
0: That was part one of two parts of Katie Daly's interview with Paul Beard. More information about Beard Guitars can be found on the web at www.beardguitars.com. Beard Guitars is also very active on Facebook and Instagram. Stay tuned for part two of Katie's interview with Paul Beard, which will be released in just several days. Thanks for listening. A transcript of parts one and two of the Paul Beard interview can be found in the archives at Bluegrass Today at BluegrassToday.com.